This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it is my great pleasure <laughs> to present Marion Nessel, author of now 10 books. Her most recent book, Unsavory Truth, uh, is, came out in October. Uh, we're all really lucky to have Marion here um, the uh, Industry Documents Library. Uh, we just launched in October a food industry documents library that lives alongside our chemical and, and pharmaceutical and tobacco industry document libraries. And uh, Marion used some of the documents in the library before we went live for her book. And there's a little story maybe she'll get to tell you about how certain librarians in the room bailed her out. <laughs> <laughs> you want to you, you want to share what happened? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. But first of all, thank you all for coming. Um, I taught and was an associate dean at the medical school here from 1976 to 1986, a uh, hundred years ago. And <laughs> my family medicine department chair is here, and I'm just so thrilled um, to be back. And there there are still people who were here when I was here. It's really nice to be here. My first office at UCSF had this view, um, and I knew that it would all fall apart when they moved me out of that office into family medicine, which was in the basement of this building, in the middle of the parking lot. Uh, that, that was the beginning of the end. But the story that Laura's telling begins... Um, with the, of all things, the Russian hacking of Hillary Clinton's emails and why someone interested in food politics would be talking about something like that. It's such a bizarre story it that it's worth talking, talking about. So when those emails came out, and this was a separate set that was posted on a site called DC Leaks, and these were emails of Hillary Clinton's assistants. Um, the newspapers were all full of how elitist they were and so forth. Well, they happened to pick up a set of emails from someone who was traveling with her, a woman named Capricia Marshall, um, whose role on the campaign I've never been able to figure out. She was a friend of Hillary Clinton's. Um, and while she was working on the Clinton campaign, she was also consulting for Coca-Cola, um, at a retainer of $7,000 a month. Not a bad gig. <laughs> and her emails were in there. And I got um, emails that day from uh, someone at Ninjas for Health, um, Kyle. Um, you know, a, a health advocacy organization. I didn't know. Kyle Fister. Kyle, Kyle Fister sent me an email. And I also got one from Russ Green at CrossFit. I didn't even know what CrossFit was <laughs> at the time. Saying, Marion, you're in the emails. What? How was that possible? How could I be in the Hillary Clinton emails? I went to look, and sure enough, there they were. And it turned out that I had been a visiting scholar at the University of Sydney in Australia in the, fall, in the winter, January, February, March of 2016. I had just published Soda Politics. A copy of it is floating around here. Um, and the, um, I was talking about the issues in Soda Politics. And I had been asked to give a talk to the Nutrition Australia Nutrition Association of Australia, and I gave a talk. And as I was coming into the room, it was a small group, somebody said, there's a representative from Coca-Cola here. Do you care? Um, and I said, no, that's fine. I had just published Soda Politics. It's a book about the soda industry. I assumed that there was somebody from Coca-Cola in every talk I gave. And you know who you are. <laughs> Right. So, um, so it turned out that that person had taken notes on my talk, very good ones actually, and that they had gone up through the chain of command along with recommendations that Coca-Cola monitor my activities in Australia and also monitor the activities of Lisa Biro, who many of you may know because she worked here for years. Uh, she's now at the University of Sydney. And I was working in her group. 
uh, and that they monitor my activities and Lisa's activities. Lisa got a full-page article in the Sydney Morning Herald as a result (laughs) of that. Um, So it was very well publicized. Um, So those DC Leaks um, site had the emails. And I happened to be at a meeting in Mexico last year um, I, I was in Mexico on a Fulbright, and Laura turned up at a meeting there, and I was telling her about these emails. And I said, you know, the Internet isn't very secure, and these emails are deeply embedded, and I don't know how to copy them, and I don't know what to do. I'm afraid the site's going to be taken down. And Laura said... Our librarians will take care of that. <laughs> Went back, the librarians took care of it, and three weeks later the site came down. Gone. So, happy story. Happy you want to read the emails? They're here they're, someplace. Yeah. Log on to Industry Documents Library. They're there. They're here. So, I have a few questions, and, and actually members of our team kind of weighed in on this, and um, uh, we may not get to all of them, but we'll. I want to start with... Um, so, Marion, you've been on a book tour for about four months now since your book came out, and uh, I'm sure you've been hearing various people's reaction to the contents of your book, which uh, include essentially um, outing your own professional um, society, the American Society for Nutrition, <laughs> um, about uh, its corporate partners, mm-hmm. Coca-Cola, Car- Cargill, Mondelez, um, the Sugar Association. Uh, these are uh, corporate sponsors of your professional society. And, um, and you show how they even sided with um, industry on key issues in the public health debate, like mm-hmm. should we put added sugars on the nutrition label, market for consumers. Uh, they've adopted some very industry-friendly mm-hmm. uh, practices and positions. And so uh, my first question is, have they revoked your membership yet? <laughs> I have not heard one word from a nutrition colleague. Dead silence. Um, The book has been reviewed in some very nice places. Science, Nature, most recently Lancet. It's gotten very, very nice reviews. Um, None of the nutrition journals has reviewed it that I'm aware of. It's early yet. Um, But complete total silence. I write in the book about a commission that the American Society for Nutrition started actually three years ago. Um, And the commission has now released, this was a a commission on trust in nutrition science. Um, And that commission was started, I think, in part because of my nagging the officers of the American Society for Nutrition that really they had to do something about conflicts of interest or or nobody would ever trust a nutrition study again. Um, And they appointed this commission, and I have to say they appointed very, very good people on it, um, including an assistant or associate editor of JAMA Internal Medicine, um, who I think is very good, and there were some other very good people on it. And they came out with a report, and what was so interesting about the report to me was that the com- commission was, desi- was divided on whether the society should take money from food companies or not. There were people who thought that the society should take no money whatsoever, and there were other people who thought that the uh, society should take industry money but do it under circumstances in which there were controls over it. Whether those controls work or not, we can argue about. So that's now out for public comment, and it's out for public comment. You can go on the American Society for Nutrition website and look at this report and weigh in on it. There's a questionnaire that you can fill out, not just members. They ask you whether you're a member or not, but anybody can fill it out. So um, can I do some lobbying here? (laughs) Go on that website, fill out the form, tell them not to take industry money, please. That's lobbying. So on on the flip side, there's this whole movement, and you talk about this in your book, to um, hyper-regulate conflicts of interest. So beyond financial conflicts, uh, but like the journal Nature is asking for other kinds of conflicts. Um, 
the ideological conflict, the, uh, the idea of using uh, freedom of information requests to harass scientists and uh, under the cover of transparency has become just a very common practice. Mm. Many of us have been part subject to that. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and fortunately, we have a really good general counsel's office mm. here that is, is very good at navigating those kinds of issues. So the question is, do you think we're, we're are we leaning too far in sometimes? Or do you think that, that um, where, where do you, do you think we're going, to, we're, we're, we're overcorrecting. Oh, I don't think these are overcorrections. I think these are attempts to make industry sponsorship less important and to dilute the effect of industry sponsorship. Industry sponsorship is really clear, um, in part because of research on cigarettes, uh, chem- environmental chemicals, and pharmaceutical drugs. And the pharmaceutical drug one is the easiest one to talk about it. At medical school, uh, there have been studies dating back 50 years, 60 years, books written about the influence of pharmaceutical industry funding on physicians' prescription practices. And this research is so clear and so endlessly repeated. There are thousands of studies. And these show, without question that industry funding influences the outcome of research and that that outcome is almost always favorable to the industry sponsor. Um, That's conclusion one. Conclusion two is that the the researchers or physicians who take industry funding are either consciously or unconsciously Um, completely unaware that there's an influence. They don't believe there's an influence. They don't see the influence. They deny there's an influence, despite vast amounts of research that argues otherwise. So that's what you're up again. There's been almost no research done comparatively in the food and nutrition area. I could only find 11 studies. I mean, that's a tiny amount. There are thousands on drug industry funding. Um, So you're up against the situation in which you've got um, phenomenal amounts of research showing, Lisa Biro did a lot of this, um, where the the influence of industry funding comes up in the way the research question is designed. There's a big difference between asking a research question, um, what is the effect of this food, nutrient, or diet, and let's show the benefits. We're looking for research to show the benefits of this food, nutrient, or diet. And I get letters from food companies all the time, trade associations. We're looking, we've got $35,000, and we're looking for research projects to demonstrate the benefits of grapes, pecans, uh, peanuts, yogurt, whatever. I've got stacks of these things. That's marketing research. Uh, it's not basic research. The other issues are having to do with career advancement. Every investigator is biased because every investigator wants to adv- wants results that are going to come out the way that researcher wants the results to come out because of career reasons. Um, or um, I'm a vegan and I want to demonstrate that vegan diets are healthier than any other kind of diet. That's an ideological bias. And those are being equated with industry biases when, in fact, they're not comparable. And they're not comparable because every investigator wants career advancement and every investigator is wedded to a hypothesis. But the hypotheses are different and the results are different. In the case of industry funding, the results are completely predictable from the sponsor. Not completely, but are predictable from from the sponsor more often than not. I can look at the titles of journal articles and figure out who the sponsor is just from the title. You know, mangoes are terrific for... <laughs> mango, mangoes are better than fiber supplements for solving problems of constipation. Guess who funded that? <laughs> who else would do a study like that? I love mangoes. Don't get me wrong. I just wish they wouldn't sponsor that kind of research. So um, just shifting gears a little bit and thinking about the role of industry and industry funding in policy and politics around health, um, I'm really struggling with how do we um, lift the veil on some of this. And I w- I, there was a chilling 
set of papers that came out in BMJ and other, uh, and also in the New York Times, uh, in, in the media, around a Harvard uh, anthropologist who is studying. Yeah, I want to know what you think, Marion. I thought it was this is, was an article by an anthropologist at Harvard who had gone, who was an expert on China. Um, and had go, had been in China and did an investigation of a group called the International Life Sciences Institute, um, which is um, an industry front group. Yeah, that's, a scientific that's front putting, group. That's putting that's putting it bluntly. Um, but they're supported by food companies. They were founded by Coca Cola. I think it's fair to say that they're an industry front group. Yeah. And in when I wrote Unsavory Truth, my most re- recent book about all this. Um, Sort of when I was finished writing the manuscript of the book, I was there was some reference to Ilse. It's that's its abbreviation. There was some reference to Ilse late in the book, and I thought, didn't I say something like this earlier? So I did a search of the manuscript, and I had discussed Ilse more than twenty times in the book. It came up over and over and over in one context or another. And what this anthropologist had found was that Ilse had worked with the government of China with with members of its organization in China to get the Chinese government to focus on physical activity rather than diet as a approach to dealing with Uh, obesity among the Chinese population. And she had done this through extensive interviews with people in the Ministry of Health, with people, with nutritionists, with people in government. Uh, So she had all this interview material, and then she had done a review of documents. I thought it was a brilliant, it was a brilliant piece of work. She couldn't get it published. She just couldn't get it published. I uh, wrote the Journal for Public Health Policy and said, um, you know, can she submit her article to you and take a look at it? And it ended up where the BMJ did, in fact, publish a summary of what she had done, and the Journal of Public Health Policy on the same day published some of her interview, her anthropological interview material, and it got phenomenal press. Mm-hmm. Just phenomenal press, um, as it should have, because it was really important work. Um, so I, you know, I, what I've noticed is that people have a lot of trouble getting these things published. Mm-hmm. But when they do, there's really huge important. public interest, and the more public interest there is on this, um, the easier it is to yeah. get these things published. So that's China. <laughs> And, um, uh, and a few yeah. other, there are people doing this in a few other countries, Yeah, Ilse's too. everywhere, including Ilse is the, everywhere. the level of the WHO trying to exactly. avoid being uh, repre- identified mm-hmm. as a private mm-hmm. sector actor. Uh, that's right. A, a, and that's in the, in the uh, industry documents library. Mm. That's where I found that out. <laughs> but um, uh, taking it home to food politics in the Trump era, mm. uh, it's not looking all that different in, in many ways. And I'm thinking about Brenda Fitzgerald, who was the former mm-hmm. head of the CDC, mm-hmm. who worked for Coca-Cola and got uh, booted out of her job only when her connections to tobacco companies and inside deals uh, was outed. And certain journalists, Anahat O'Connor at the New York Times and others started to expose who she was and what she mm-hmm. was doing. So that's mm-hmm. industry inside our government at the highest levels of mm-hmm. our public health um, mm-hmm. uh, system. Uh, another example is the New York Times uh, 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 got some leaked materials. The rewriting of the NAFTA treaty had food, um, food lobbyists writing the legislation or writing the treaty and included in that language that would preempt, make it impossible for governments to put front of package labeling uh, on on junk food uh, and and such. And so uh, there are a lot of ways in which the food lobbyists are inside our own government mm-hmm. and using their financial uh, power to to manipulate things. So, I mean, my biggest question is like, how do we how do we represent 
public health in a context like that, where we're always on the defensive and where we're barely, you know, st- we're struggling to make SNAP safe and not means tested. Mm. And we're down to, it feels like down to the bone when it comes to our public health protections in the midst of a, of a diabetes epidemic. So what are the, what are, how do we, how do we, how do we out the industry in this context? Mm. Or are we so cynical that we just think that, well, this is just the way we're doing government these days? Run for office. Run for office. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we need a regime change. And the uh, otherwise it's eternal vigilance, absolutely eternal vigilance. I'm giving a lecture series at the journalism department in Berkeley and the Berkeley Food, co-sponsored by the Berkeley Food Institute, and I'm giving three lectures. The one I gave this week was on food policy in the Trump era, um, in which I reviewed what I consider to be no issue is too small for the Trump administration not to try to do something bad with it. Um, It was a pretty depressing talk. I'm really sorry about that. Um, My next one is on nutrition science under siege, where I'm going to talk about the huge attack on nutrition science that is occurring right now, some of which is justified, but some of it is absolutely not. Um, And in any case, nobody has any alternative for how to do nutrition science better. And until you have that alternative, you really shouldn't be complaining so much. Um, and then the third one is going to be an agenda for the food movement. So I'm, um, these lectures were an opportunity to think about these questions in a way that I really hadn't thought about them before so concretely. But the Trump administration won in which I thought, how am I going to make this less depressing? And I finally hit on a cartoon character that I planted on every slide in which there was pushback on what the Trump administration was trying to do. That pushback has to be relentless. It just has it just has to be. There has to be somebody watching every single one of these things and complaining loudly um, with as many people along with them as possible in order to expose the kind of thing that's going on. And my list of things that the Trump administration is doing in the Department of Agriculture, particularly where it has a a, a secretary of agriculture who looks like he wants to destroy everything that's been done, including, and, and my favorite example, is moving the Economic Research Service out of Washington under a political appointee. The Economic Research Service, if you don't know about it, is one of the, it's it's an American treasure. I don't know how else to put it. These are researchers who are doing studies of um, food and health, food and the environment, um, food policy, undernutrition, overnutrition. They are absolutely nonpartisan, and they're producing data that is completely invaluable. I depend on those studies for much of the work that I do. And the idea that you would destroy an agency that is so good in producing such important work, nobody ever heard of them, they deliberately have a very, very low profile, Mm -hmm. so they won't get politicized. And to try to politicize an agency like that is just a travesty. There's been huge pushback on it. Um, and there are con- congressional representatives who have said, we're not going to let this happen. So, and maybe it won't. I mean, there's really crazy things happening right now. So <laughs> what is up with the Brazilian, bailing out the Brazilian pork industry? <laughs> <laughs> what is going oh, that on That was there? my blog post yesterday, <laughs> um, was that um, the bailout money that's supposed to go to American farmers uh, a bunch of it went to JBS, the biggest Brazilian meat packer in the world. That's because JBS has a big presence in the United States and I think employs, they literally don't know empl- that it's in Brazil? And employs 73,000 workers in the United States. So you, you think they literally don't realize that it's a Brazilian company? Well, it's American jobs. That's what the, you know, they care about. I don't know. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I get to talk about things like that yeah. on my blog. 
So one um, one thing that's uh, come up, Kristen was really curious about what you think about the upcoming U.S. dietary guidelines, and in particular, <laughs> she's worried about whether the added sugar um, uh, um, on the nutrition labels, whether that's going to get... Oh, that's um, out. The ad- that's out. That's already. out. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're not going to And that. are the added sugars recommendations likely to change, do you think? Well, I don't think so, because the big push on the dietary guidelines, if you believe Politico, and I do, is <laughs> going to be about low-carb diets. Um, Nina oh. Teicholz and her lobbying group oh, are wow. lobbying the Department of Agriculture uh, to get rid of any discussion of fat at all and focus entirely on low-carb uh, diets. So your sugar recommendation is safe. <laughs> um, politics makes strange bedfellows. Um, the, um, you know, the dietary guidelines, I've made a career of the dietary guidelines. I just love them. I'm just, you get to do it every five years. You get to do the whole thing again. They really never change. If you read between the lines, the advice is always the same. I'm willing to put money that this one will still say, balance calories, uh, don't eat too much junk food and eat fruits and vegetables. You want to put bets on it, I'll put bets on it. That's what they've always always said. That's what dietary recommendations have said since the 1950s. They're not going to change. Um, only the little details will change. Um, but they're very late in appointing a dietary guidelines advisory committee. I was on the dietary guidelines advisory committee in 1995. And at that time, we reviewed research since the last five years, and we wrote recommendations based on that research, and we wrote the dietary guidelines that were very lightly edited before they were released to the public. That changed in 2005 under Bush II when it became much more political. Now the advisory committee writes a great big long report that's hundreds and hundreds of pages long, and the agencies write the Uh, the actual guidelines. And I was, for reasons that I will never understand, a reviewer on the last set of dietary guidelines. And I can tell you, I thought they were... I'm not allowed to talk about that, so I won't, um, except to say that I was... I can say I was a reviewer, because that's public knowledge. Um, But how the agencies turned the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee report into what finally came out is a complete mystery to me. I don't know how it happened. Um, I know what I saw in an earlier draft. Uh, Some of it had a relationship to what was published and some of it didn't. Um, And there are things in the Dietary Guidelines for Americans in 2015 that are so bizarre, I don't know what to make of them. The cholesterol recommendation, for example. You don't have to worry about cholesterol, but you should eat as little cholesterol as possible. Go look at it. That's what it says. You know, it's head spinning. I don't know what you do about that. Uh, And I don't know what they'll do this time. These will be enormously politicized because not only do we have the food industry that does not want one word about eat less meat, eat less sugar, eat less fat, eat less salt, um, and has fought those for ages, but you've got pressures to... Uh, talk about sustainability. The Lancet reports that came out a couple of weeks ago um, talked about the importance of linking agricultural policy to health and nutrition policy. The dietary guidelines should do that. They won't. Um, and and then you've got people like the Nina Teicholses of the world who think that meat and fat and saturated fat are terrific for health and everybody should be eating them. And I don't know what that's about, but that's her particular ideology. Um, And she has Arnold Foundation money behind her, deep, deep pockets, um, and gets a hearing wherever she wants to go. It's kind of amazing. So we're waiting to see who's appointed. You know, historically, the Department of Agriculture has appointed half the people and the Health and Human Services has appointed the other half. The Department of Agriculture is in charge this year, and it has said it is firmly in charge. Hmm. So we'll see. Yeah, and there's no way for the public to influence that decision. Oh, yeah, you can write in. You can write in. You can write in. Good luck with that. (laughs) I don't know what they're going to do, but it sure is going to be fun to watch. (laughs) 
So we have both oh. students, faculty, um, various folks in the room that have um, advised us. And um, so what would be your, what's, what can we as a university do um, to really influence within the context of our being a public university and there's some things we can do and some things we can't do. We can't um, lobby on a ballot or, or once something's on the ballot, we have to be careful about where, mm. where we sit on it uh, but, um, mm. and what we say about it. But what can we do? I mean, things are pretty challenging in food politics in the Trump era, to say the least. What can we do other than sit by and wring our hands <laughs> Produce facts. Remember facts. Remember so how facts. So how do we push against produce that? Facts. that? You produce facts. You do fact-based um, discussions of these things. And, you know, the people who talk about how you frame issues talk about how you deal with facts. First you state the facts then you state the alternative facts, and then you state the facts again. But you always begin with facts, and that you have evidence to prove it. The Beverage Association, I mean, anybody who's looking at that is going to know that they're interpreting the research in ways that favor their interests. And, you know, they're not always wrong about these things. I mean, when they talk about how... um, calories from sugar-sweetened beverages are only a small part of calorie intake. This is true. So you acknowledge the truth, but then go on to talk about what the data show. And you do that over and over and over and over again. I don't know. I mean, in, in the case of sugary drinks, I'm sorry, it's worked. It's worked really, really well. Uh, the peak year for consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages in the United States was either 1999 or 2000. That means it's been going down for almost 20 years. That's the effect of public health lobbying. Absolutely, without any question. It's getting the information out there. You know, and let's talk about soda taxes. We're in the middle of an area in which soda taxes were able to be passed. That's effective food and nutrition advocacy like nobody's ever seen before. I believe there are 40 countries in the world now that are considering or have soda taxes. Um, And the soda industry has been willing to put hundreds of millions of dollars by now into fighting these. You know you're doing something right. Thank you. That feels So, um, you know, I I mean, really, this is a place where you shouldn't be depressed. This is a place (laughs) where things are working. I mean, so admirable. So let's talk about another place where things seem to be working, which is at the global level. I mean, between the Lancet Commission report, the WHO um, coming out and saying we need taxation, uh, they got, I know, they got... Not quite. Well, they're going to leave uh, no, it up to I mean, countries to decide. Fiscal strategies. They they did, and then they <laughs> mm-hmm. and then they got. Well, maybe you want to tell the. No, it's fine. Is. It's the, the United States objected, and they took that out and said that it's up to countries to decide. Right. Yeah. But Freedom they. But choice. even so, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. for WHO. That's gutsy. It's pretty gutsy. <laughs> that right. is, and right. so, it, it, do you think that because maybe there's something going on with. Um, uh, our inability to rein in c- corporations and their global reach, maybe other countries and the globe are starting to look at this situation and say, hey, we better protect ourselves against this um, corporate. Well, I get interviewed by international re- reporters for international publications all the time about the issues I discussed in Unsavory Truth, and I get asked questions like, well, I'm in Europe. What does this have to do with me? I'm in Brazil. What does this have to do with me? Um, well, it, that's, I've got easy answers to those questions. These are international global com- countries, exactly. and if Coca-Cola can't sell its products in right. the United States, it's going to sell them in Myanmar. And I love the Mi- Myanmar story because Myanmar had no history of drinking cold beverages. Coca-Cola had to teach the Burmese people how to drink cold beverages. <laughs> An educational program. 
um, you know, in, Braz in Brazil, Coke and Pepsi have, and the New York Times had this incredible series of articles a couple of years ago, Planet Fat, um, it was called, in which they talked about the way that global food corporations were pushing junk foods in developing countries. And they have lots and lots of data in those, in those stories. They were really amazing. Um, and the countries know uh, what's going on. The only language that unsavory truth is being translated into so far is Portuguese. Um, and that's because Brazil sees this, or a Brazilian publisher saw this as being so relevant to the situation in Brazil that they wanted to head off. Some of some of it, so that's kind of exciting. I'm going to go to Brazil in April. But I do like to to, oh. to feel that for every door that shuts, one opens. And I just from having worked on the South African and Indian soda taxes, there mm. is a sense I think in many of these, in some of these countries at least, that we better do something about it because. The U.S. isn't going to do anything about it. Well, let, let me say something, you know, sort of overview. I published my book, Food Politics, in 2002. That's now, um, how many years ago? I can't, you know, it's 13 years ago. Um, is that right? No, 16 years ago. Um, I can't add in front of people. The, um, the, uh, when soda politics came out, it was a big shock to people. Um, and, I, you know, I thought I was just describing the obvious when I was writing about it, but it turns out lots of people hadn't thought about the food industry as um, being anything other than a social service or public health. I mean, people viewed the, suit, the food industry as being a social service agency. They're providing food to us. Aren't they wonderful? They're a public health agency. They're keeping us healthy. And people weren't looking at the food industry as a corporation or as a business or um, having business as its primary motivation. That's changed. Yeah. That has really changed in that 15, 16 year period. Um, hardly anybody asks me, I mean, I still get asked occasionally, I don't understand what does food have to do with politics, but I, don't, I hardly yeah. ever get asked that anymore. Yeah. Um, so I think there have been huge changes. And some of that comes from the press, some of that comes from researchers who have looked at these issues. Um, I think food corporations are on the defensive now. Yeah. They're terrified, absolutely terrified. They're terrified of the public that just wants food to be better and healthier mm -hmm. and whatever, the personal responsibility. Right. They're terrified of the personal choices of individuals who don't want artificial things in their food and they're scrambling to get rid of artificial colors. But I think they're even more terrified of the people who want changes in the food system because they will lose if the food system changes to one that's healthier for people on the planet. They know it. They can't figure out what to do about it. With that, let's open it up for questions. Thank you for all your work. Um, I'm particularly interested in the role of uh, pesticides and herbicides in um, how we start out with um, insufficient insulin signaling because of glyphosate. Started out with? How we, in, in utero, when we're exposed ah, to, exposure to glyphosate. So it's, like, mm -hmm. it's like, how can you, how can we turn it around? If, yeah. And those are just a disease is waiting to happen. Mm. Yeah, I don't know what to say about chemicals and pesticides. I think it's an enormous issue. The books that have come out recently, there's a new one that's just come out on endocrine disruptors um, that's pretty impressive. There's a terrific book out on glyphosate, the chemical that's used with genetically modified foods. Um, these appear in people's bloodstreams in very small amounts. It's very hard to tell scientifically what the effect of that is and what's coming out more and more is the extraordinary efforts of the pesticide herbicide industry to keep research from demonstrating harm from the products although when that research is done 
harm seems to be shown, but it's, I mean, I, I found the argument over the carcinogenicity of glyphosate to be a, a classic example where the IR committee, um, the WHO yeah, organization yeah, yeah. that deals with cancer risk, um, said that glyphosate was a probable carcinogen. That's big news. And then the industry went to work. And what do you do in that situation? The number one thing you do is you cast doubt on the research. And they have done, I think, a a phenomenal job of casting doubt on the research so that unless, unless you're following this carefully, you would have no idea what's going on, and I find it very hard to follow carefully. Even somebody like me who tracks this kind of thing, I'm confused. I don't know what the definitive story is on any of this, in part because the industry has been so effective in keeping the research um, either confused or whatever. I think we're going to be hearing lots more about pesticides. One resource is uh, we convened a a symposium of environmental toxicologists and people who work on human health. And uh, um, last fall, uh, Tracy Woodruff here at UCSF is a leader in this area. She used to work um, in the the federal government at the EPA. Uh, And uh, you can get it online, the whole symposium. We brought these folks in. A lot of these chemicals that are regulated as carcinogens in California under Prop 65 mm-hmm. are actually also suspected obesogens. And so that was our question that we wanted to kind of get some expert feedback on. So if you go, it'll be easy to remember COAST, uh, which is our an obesity center here at UCSF. We have the whole thing, uh, the whole symposium online. It was a real eye-opener to sit for a day and listen to these folks talk yeah, about Yeah, I think it's issue. the new frontier. It's exactly. That's what they no. said. Yeah. And the uh, chemical industry has fought tooth and nail against the uh, California Prop 65 because it's, it's a sort of, for the, from their standpoint, it's dragging the regulatory system down, right? And, and so they're, they're obsessed with our Prop 65. Yeah, what and, if it spreads? Yeah, and it only regulates these a certain class of chemicals as carcinogens. So... Um, it's a fascinating area, but it's struck me that the evidence is very early. And yeah, thank you to repeat um, the name of the organization. I wrote down American Society of Nutritionists, but I couldn't. I looked on American the Society for Nutrition. For nutrition. Yeah, that's the uh, professional organization for doctoral level nutrition researchers and clinicians. That's opposed to. The um, Academy for Nutrition and Dietetics. I have a chapter in the book about them too, yeah. uh, but they're actually dealing with these issues more effectively, I think, than my professional society is. And if I could just a second question um, for those jurisdictions that do have a soda tax, I'd like to hear what you think the best use of those soda taxes are. Oh, that depends on the community. You know, for some public health purpose, people will support them. As long as you have a public health purpose, communities, uh, people will vote for them. You know, that's where the Mexico soda tax got into trouble because the government promised that the taxes would be used to clean up Mexico's water supply, and they didn't do that. And that's been a big problem. Big problem. Big problem. (laughs) So this is a question about the uh, sort of uh, health uh, and food policies in the era of Trump. Um, uh, I can imagine that there are some things going on that may have long persistent effects. There are other things where policies could get quickly reversed, you know, under a new regime. Are there particular ones that we should worry about where the effects will persist a long time? Mm Yeah, and SNAP and school food. Mm. Those are the big ones. Um, you know, I mean, I could talk about lots and lots of little ones, but SNAP and school food are the ones that affect the largest number of people. SNAP affects almost 40 million Americans, and school food, 30 million school children. So these are huge segments of the population. Uh, and, you know, I, I mean, it's a source of, I just can't get my head around. How is it possible that 
everybody doesn't want school children to eat more healthfully. Isn't that a bipartisan issue? Don't we all want our kids to be healthy? Apparently not. Um, and so that, even though what seemed like very tiny, I would call put this under the heading of nitpicking, they can have a little more sodium, they can have a little less whole grain, um, they can have a few fewer fruits and vegetables, um, it's just the principle of it that and I think it's going to be very, very difficult to get that one. SNAP, of course, is the elephant in the room because it's the end of the federal safety net for the poor. It's the only thing that stands between um, food insecurity and, um, and not for a, a, an awful lot of people. You know, it's a program with, I have a lot to criticize about the program. I think there are many, 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 many things that are just horrible about it, but it's all we've got. And it's impossible to talk about improving that program while it's under attack. Exactly. It cost $68 billion last year. We have a big tax cut in this country. <clears throat> the money in that tax cut has to be made up from somewhere. It looks like a cash cow. Um, and the attacks on it have been relentless. So they couldn't get work requirements into the farm bill. They failed on that. So now they're looking at another way of getting work requirements. If that fails, they'll try another way. They're just not giving up. Yeah. And so that means eternal advocacy vigilance. And the, fortunately, there are lots of people in Congress who are keeping an eye on this. Um, whether they'll be able to hold off the hordes, I don't know. But how do you get people to think and act and create policies that do focus on longer term? Yeah, it's really difficult um, because people only care about what affects them personally and immediately. Um, and if you, and I think the best way to do it is to try to translate that the long term consequences into something more immediate. Um, or something, this is going to affect your children, or um, is something that I think people can grasp. But the, um, I don't know what to say. The Republicans are really good at it, um, at framing issues. They're really good at framing issues in ways that people could react to emotionally. And how you go about framing these kinds of issues in a way that reaches people emotionally is something that... You know, I, I think a lot of people are working on Nobody's really figured it out. Um, but I think, you know, I, I come back to the Berkeley soda tax, which I know a lot about, <laughs> you know, from having read. And one of the things I was told, and John, you can tell me if this is right, is I was told that people went door to door canvassing in Berkeley and asked people if they had someone in their family who had type 2 diabetes. Is that true? Um, Everybody had someone in their family with type 2 diabetes. Everybody had somebody who was blind, who had had a foot removed, who had had toes removed, who had been just in terrible problem trying to replace insulin or whatever. People could react to that in a really emotional way. And that kind of, that's grassroots community organizing. Okay, Berkeley's a small community. Um, where it was, where that was able to be done. But in my book, Soda Politics, I contrast that door-to-door -door grassroots advocacy with what Mayor Bloomberg, who was a terrific mayor, did in New York with the soda cap idea, which was he just dumped it, doing no community organizing at all. I think community organizing is essential, and that you have to make the political personal. And door-to-door -door canvassing is very labor-intensive. I think it's essential. Last but not least, Claire. So, Marianne, thank you so much for today, and Laura as well for your questions. One thing that is really affecting uh, our perception really has to do with social determinants of health uh -huh. and, um, you know, marginalized populations and uh, low income and all the diversities that we talk about. And the marketing uh, have been very effective, obviously, around looking at ethnic diversity in particular. And I'm just wondering about what are some of the strategies that you feel would be effective to counter this um, terrible, abysmal use of manipulation of communities? Use of? 
Are there any strategies to help targeted balance marketing targeted marketing? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, my answer to that is the same that this is grassroots advocacy on a personal level and making it political. You know, you mentioned social and behavioral determinants of health. I teach public health, and I've taught courses in social and behavioral determinants of health. And everybody I know who teaches this basic aspect of public health says the same thing, that it is almost impossible to get these ideas across to students conceptually, that there's a real resistance to thinking about upstream, that's the jargon word, public health term for that, upstream causes of health problems are very, very difficult for people to grasp conceptually. Even if you diagram it on the board, and the example that I love to give is uh, coal-burning power plants uh, that put mercury into the environment, um, as opposed to your having to go to a supermarket and know the difference between one kind of fish and another in order to choose fish that are lower in mercury. I, I mean, something that's impossible for individuals to do. Why don't we just stop it? up at the upstream end. Really difficult conceptually. The default among the students that I teach, at least, is always educate individuals. That's always the default. Um, Unfortunately, educating individuals is impossible. There are too many individuals and not nearly enough educators. And so that means you have to work at the upstream level but that's difficult for people to understand. And I, you know, what I, if I've learned one thing, it's that you cannot underestimate how difficult it is conceptually for people to grasp the concept of upstream. Really, really hard. So if you know that and you know you're up against a difficult conceptual problem, you'll approach it in a way that starts maybe from where people are and tries to go forward from that. But I don't know any other way to do that other than to try to make those changes at the policy level so individuals don't have to worry about them. That's public health. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So thank you. Inspiring. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.